Hey everybody, welcome to Dog People, a podcast about the Japanese punk bands Going Steady and Ginnan Boys. My name's Bob Vielma. I'm here with my co-host, Nathan Norris, a.k.a. Mike Huguenor, and Adam Passion. Um, Adam's going to take the reins on this episode. What are we talking about today? All right. Well, today, actually, I wanted to dive into something that's very connected to the title of the show itself, Dog People. So before I really unravel what the topic is, I want to ask you guys, what is your memory when you first heard the song, Dog People, Inu Ningen? What was the thing that stood out to you, your first impressions? Definitely the 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 dog barking chorus and like the really obnoxious funk funk <laughs> guitar. <laughs> yeah, it felt like uh, to me almost. It felt like the clearest uh, connection to school jackets. Like the funk guitar, the immediacy of it, and the kind of like uh, shortness, you know, just, just having it be uh, <laughs> freaky and quick. And then, of course, the yeah, the barking for sure, the one ones. So that barking in particular, did that make you? Did that elicit anything in you? Did it just did it just sound funny? Did it even sound like barking to you? To me, as someone who didn't really yet know the uh, syllable as like the syllable for a dog bark in Japanese, uh, I just took it as like uh, pushing <laughs> them pushing further, trying to be more obnoxious, more kind of like in your face. And and then when I realized the context of it, it kind of gave, it made more sense for sure. Okay. Okay. Well, the reason I ask you that is because I played this song for my own children, all three of them, and I played it for other Japanese friends and family. And every single person that you play this for in Japan, they all have the same reaction, which is that it sounds like this old kind of song that kids sing in preschool. And I'm going to play that song for you right now. So the song is called Maigo no Koneko-chan, which means the lost little kitten. And the story is that this little cat gets lost. She's trying to find her way home. And she runs into a dog who is the kind of neighborhood watch policeman. And he's asking her, you know, where's your house? And she doesn't know. Who's your mom? I don't know. And she just keeps crying. And so the policeman is kind of upset. And his response to her goes like this. The meaning of the song is not really significant at all. The reason that I bring this up is because I think that there are a lot of references in this music that touch on certain cultural touchstones that every Japanese person can identify with. And they are things that I think that we as Western listeners wouldn't catch on. And especially, I mean, even people like the three of us, you know, Bob, you majored in Japanese. Mike, you studied it in school and um, I've lived here for a long time, there are certain things that unless you grow up here and you go to, you know, kindergarten with everybody else and you watch the same TV shows, there are certain cultural touchstones that I don't think a lot of Western audiences would, would catch. The way I try to think of it is like, for example, you remember that song, I don't know, this is, I don't know why this popped in my mind, but that song, Pop Goes the Weasel by Third Base. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Pop, pop goes the weasel, the weasel, pop goes the weasel. 
the second record was number one on the pop chart. So that song is about Vanilla Ice both being a weasel and going pop. But on the surface, if you just looked at the title, every American would be like, oh, that's from that old song Pop Goes the Weasel. So I think that this is something that happens all over the world in all kinds of contexts. But I wanted to explain some of these references to you and then what I think is going on with some of them. So that's what the topic is today is to explain the Japanese cultural references. Cool. Sounds good. Sounds good. Keep them coming. So I, I broke it down into basically three types. So there's a lot of kids' songs that are referenced in Going Steady and in Ginnam Boys. Um, then there's also kids' books and animation and things like that. Um, and then there's some really like kind of old cultural things. And I think that almost all of these are things that Japanese people would recognize right away. And there's some that are more deep cuts that I, I'm not going to leave that I'm going to leave out. And there's also things that I'm I'm certainly going to miss because I'm not a native Japanese speaker. But so I'll go first into the kids' songs. Now the one that I just played for you, that's the Maigo no Koneko-chan, and that's the second song on Door was the Inu Ningen, right? Um, the first track on the other album that was released simultaneously, the uh, Nihonjin or Nipponjin, right? I'm going to play something for you from that as well. Okay, so let me play you what the original sounds like. That is a kid's song as well, and it goes like this. So that that pretty little kid song is the one that <laughs> Mineta is destroying in the uh, in that first track, and he does a lot of these kind of things where he's playing these kid songs that I think most people recognize. That one is more of a of a obscure one than the Maigo no Koneko Chan, but it's still one that I think everybody would know. Yeah, it seems to me like a you know I don't know the lyrics to the original song, but it seems like a very like soothing, almost nostalgic kind of song. Um, and the way that Mineta handles it is, is almost like a bait and switch kind of like to, to go mm -hmm. in with this really soothing, nostalgic, uh, melody that a lot of people would recognize. And then to cut through really, uh, brutally suddenly, and then, um, interrupt it <laughs> and, and become the Guinan boys essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that, and the fact that that's the first song on that album sort of makes me think that that was a message in a sense that he's starting off saying, Hey, here's this thing that all of us, and, and, and it sounds like he's singing in a really nice way to begin with. Right. And then he just very, yeah, exactly. He eases in, in this really soothing way. It sounds very evocative of the original and then uh, quickly it gets torn apart. Since that song Nipponjin is kind of skewering uh, maybe stereotypes about Japanese people or maybe the way Japanese people might even think of themselves. Mm -hmm. Does that song play a part in that sort of, in the lyrics of the song, in that in the framing of the song? Um, I, I don't, I don't think so necessarily. Like the actual lyrics of this Akatombo song don't really. Um, the only thing that I could think is that if you remember 
on their old on the old going steady albums in the Tokyo Shonen song. He talks about Akatombo landing on his finger and where are you going home to and stuff, which are kind of lyrical references to this song, I think, as well. Mm. Dragonflies, right? Yeah, the dragonflies. So I I thought that maybe he's referencing his older material, perhaps. That is really consistent. Um, that's something that he does throughout Ginem Boys, and increasingly so. It seems like increasingly um, almost eating the recent past as, he, as it goes on. Yeah. So that song in particular... I, I do want to come back and talk about that in a minute because there's some other things there that I think are really interesting. Um, but moving on to another one. So this is an, a song that was also a going steady song to begin with, and it later became a Ginnan Boys song. But it's the song Yoru Ojito Tsuki no Hime, I think is what the title is, right? Yeah. <laughs> So the the night prince and the moon princess. And that already has this kind of lyrical, almost fairy tale sound to it. And he makes a lot of references in that song to things that sound like Japanese cultural myths. So, for example, he talks about the Amanokawa, which is like this uh, mythical river that goes through the sky. And it's actually just the Milky Way galaxy. But there is a really important festival every year called Tanabata, which is the star festival. And it's when these two lovers can finally meet, you know, every year, once a year, these lovers can meet each other. And their names are Orihime and Hikoboshi, which are sort of similar to these. It's basically like, you know, the star prince and the the weaving princess or something. So there is allusions to that sort of. Uh, but then he goes on to actually very deliberately add something that every person in Japan would recognize where he starts singing the chant Moikai Madadayo, which is what kids say when they're playing hide and go seek. The words themselves, it just it just means, are you ready? No, not yet. Are you ready? Okay, you're, I'm ready now. So it's the same thing you'd say playing hide-and-go-seek anywhere. But to that cadence and with that kind of intonation is definitely the way little kids play it. And he sings it the, exactly the way little kids would do it. So there's no mistaking that he's talking about playing hide-and-go-seek, which is very, very, you know, kind of uh, po- playing on the innocence of childhood and stuff like that. So this... This idea of talking about like the, especially that Amanokawa and stuff, it's something that I think kind of comes up. I think that he's very influenced by the kind of poetic and fantasy elements of kids' storytelling here in Japan. In particular, I think he's really, really influenced by Miyazawa Kenji. And I think we talked about him briefly before. He is a writer from up in the same general region as where the Ginnan boys, or at least uh, two of the Ginnan boys come from, or three of them, I'm sorry, um, the Tohoku region up in the Northeast. And so I mentioned before that he's kind of like the Mark Twain of Japan, if I want to put it in an American context. Um, He's kind of this rural person who tells these, you know, kind of fun folk stories and stuff, but also with a lot of fantasy and stuff like that involved. And he has a lot of poems and books that are written towards kids 
that are really, really popular here. And I would put him, I would say just as far as like being recognizable as a cultural kind of, I don't know, touchstone for Japanese people, he's up there with like Natsume Soseki or people like that, where if you told people to name three authors that they know, he'd probably be in the top three. Is Miyazawa Kenji, you know, something that kids are assigned to read, you know, in junior high or even younger, perhaps? Yeah, very. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So especially the book Ginga Tetsudo no Yoru. So that is an, a, it's a book that most kids are assigned to read in junior high school. So A Night on the Galaxy Express. It's kind of a difficult book for kids to read, but it's a very simple story. But there is, I mean, obviously for Ginnan Boys fans, that is a song that they've covered. I mean, that they wrote as Going Steady and then they redid it twice at least. They just took the same title as the book, right? Yeah, exactly. The, the most recent version that they made is actually called The New Stop or New Station on the uh, Galactic Express, right? <laughs> And I'll tell you a little bit about that book. That book is, it's actually kind of a neat story. It's about a little boy named Giovanni and his dad is away on this fishing trip is what his mother tells him. Um, But it's never clear exactly where the father is. And so because the father's gone, this boy, it falls on him to make money for the family and be the breadwinner. And because of that, he's kind of awkward at school. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He gets picked on and bullied a lot. And his only real friend who cares about him in the book is his friend Campanella, this boy named Campanella. And uh, one day he and Campanella go out to see the Star Festival. It's on the day of the Star Festival, which I was just talking about. And they go up to see these stars that appear once a year, you know, on, on the Milky Way. And while he's there, he kind of essentially blacks out and wakes up on this train with his friend Campanella and they start traveling through the through the galaxy on this you know galaxy express train and they they go and see these weird things one is like the christian version of heaven one is just this big black hole in space they see all this kind of stuff and at one point and here's a big spoiler alert uh for a hundred year old <laughs> book campanella looks into the the kind of portal to heaven and he sees his own mother and he decides that he wants to go and visit her. And when that happens, Giovanni wakes up and he realizes that he's still on the top of the hill trying to look at the Star Festival, but Campanella is not there anymore. And when he comes back into town, he sees Campanella's father crying by the riverside and he realizes that Campanella has drowned in the river. And mm. um, it's a really, it's kind of an interesting book. One of the, major themes of that book and about, uh, I think, a major theme of Miyazawa Kenji's over in general is this theme of what is the true definition of happiness and where do you find happiness and meaning in life? Didn't Campanella die uh, saving another kid? Isn't that what happened? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was trying to save another Mm. kid. Exactly. Um, Mineta references Campanella in another song as well. I think it might be in the, is it in the Moonbase Beowulf? I believe so, yes. So... So this is a reference that clearly has some meaning to him and some significance. And there are actually other Miyazawa Kenji references in some of these other songs. Um, In particular, in that song, 
Nihonjin, he talks about that. And I'm going to bring that up again in a minute. I keep teasing this, but I'm going to bring it up, I promise. So, so definitely, I think Miyazawa Kenji is a big influence to him. And I think that partly is because Miyazawa Kenji is known as this very, his stories are very pure and playful. I mean, that sounds kind of dark, the story itself, but they're very pure and innocent and show the kind of wonder and, um, I don't know, magic of childhood. And I think that that's something that was really appealing to Mineta. And I can imagine in that region in particular that it would be more of a cultural thing for the kids, for kids who grow up there, just because it would be like reading Mark Twain in the South or something. You know, I think it's like he's a hero, a local hero. Mm -hmm. Very much in the same way as Mark Twain. I didn't mention that. I didn't say that casually because like this guy, he he's very proud of the local dialect that is often made fun of by people outside of that area. And so he would write his books in katakana, which is like basically just a phonetic alphabet because he wanted to express the local dialect of the way he wrote and stuff. So I, I think that for a lot of reasons, he's kind of like a Mark Twain kind of person. So I can imagine that being a very important thing for Mineta and for the other guys in the band. I heard that Miyazawa Kenji was also a very like a Van Gogh-like character in that he had this body of work that nobody knew about or cared about until after he passed away. And then he, uh, you know, they rediscovered it all and published it posthumously, including the one we're talking about, uh, Night on the Galactic Railroad is maybe his most well-known one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he died, I think, in maybe 1930 one or something like that. And this book was published in 1934. So they found it as this unpublished manuscript and actually unfinished manuscript. So mm. the whole middle section of the book wasn't even finished yet. Oh, wow. And you're right. Yeah, he, he published poems, but almost in obscurity for most of his life. And they didn't become popular until, yeah, much later. And the poems that he that he wrote, they're, they're kind of these songs that are all about uplifting the human spirit and stuff, which is something that's very much a part of those early going steady records as well. Yeah, it seems very much in the spirit of like, yeah, Boys and Girls, pretty much all the lyrics in, in Boys and Girls. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also a record which emphasizes youth repeatedly and, and um, kind of lionizes youth in a way. It sounds really, um, yeah, it sounds uh, like in resonance with, with all of Misawa Kenji's work. I think um, there's one song on Boys and Girls that uh, struck me today while getting ready. There's uh, in the bridge, mm. There's a lyric that references going to apologize to Peter Pan. And it's uh, kind of just tossed off without any context before or after, but it kind of gives the impression of, uh, you know, sorry, Peter Pan, here we are growing up. Like, we can't stay youth forever. We're growing up. Yeah. Just, uh, they don't, they don't, um, <laughs> like I said, there's no other context for it really, but I thought that's a pretty evocative reference right there. Albeit not a specifically Japanese one. Yeah, but that fits really well. I feel like that record in particular, like there's this real effort to kind of, um, capture the feeling of young energy and into, uh, really just inhabit that spirit and, um, in, in all the, the pure ways that it feels at the time, kind of. it's It feels really uncomplex and really uh, immediate. Um, but at the same time, it already feels like it's kind of sliding. It acknowledges that it can't hold on to that forever. I, I feel like having multiple songs titled Youth 
or uh, with, you know, that in the title on a record shows how hard it is to actually maintain that in the first place. Like you're, you're trying to evoke it so hard because it is a fleeting thing. And, and this idea of like apologizing to Peter Pan is, you know, he's very shortly afterwards. I mean, it goes from um, really inhabiting a youthful perspective to kind of like looking back at it almost, I feel like, uh, and remembering it, but always kind of in like a, a conflicted way, it, it seems, um, especially like talking about like uh, Nihonjin and um, kind of his approach to the canon. And that actually leads me to the next song that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, Wakusei Kichi Beowulf. You referenced this one before as Moonbase Beowulf. Yeah, Moonbase Beowulf. <laughs> And so this one, this song was a, it was on the single Wakamonotachi, right? It was the B-side of Wakamonotachi. And I don't think it ever got an official album release as Going Steady until they brought it back later as Gingon Boys. Am I correct about that? Yeah. So this was kind of a buried track. Um, it's not one of their most popular ones. But this one is is very clearly a reference to Ginga Tetsudo 999, which is Galaxy Express 999, which is a famous manga and anime series by Matsumoto Leiji. The same guy who did the Daft Punk anime for for all you house music fans oh, out there. Oh, funny. For um, uh, one more time, that one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he did like Captain Harlock and things like that. He's really um, kind of like the king of sci-fi manga here in Japan. He's still alive and he's really, um, he's just a really cool old guy and just uh, really influential, I think, to Japanese, you know, shonen manga and all other kinds of like uh, adventure and, and manga and stuff like that. His art style is instantly recognizable there's nobody else whose art looks like his too right exactly and it's not any coincidence that he named one of his most famous manga series almost exactly the same thing as that book by Miyazawa Kenji right so it's called the Galactic Express 999 and it's it's also about a young you know teenage boy who travels through the galaxy uh, but not with his friend this time it's with a kind of weird celestial being named Meiteru um and in this one, it's there are there are a lot of things that are similar to the book by Miyazawa Kenji. For example, it has to do with losing a parent and loved ones and things like that. I think that Meiteru is, if I remember correctly, she's basically like the spitting image of his mother who is either sickly or, or has already passed. Bob, mm -hmm. are you familiar with the story? It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I think the mother was killed by some robots at the beginning of the story, and then like she she steps in as the the new mother figure for for the main guy. Hmm. Yeah, and and in Matsumoto Leiji's own words, this is paraphrasing, but he basically said Meiteru traveled across the galaxy with the dreams of a human boy um, or a yeah human teenager, and that every teenager all around the world has a Meiteru in their life. And if you really sit down and think about it, you have you know this this She's traveling with every young boy in their, you know, dreams and hopes and stuff. So this also, I can totally see why this would be inspirational to somebody like Mineta who's writing about that kind of thing. Hmm. 
And in this song, he deliver like he actually calls her out by name. You know, he has a little talk breakdown, and they're playing the song "When You Wish Upon a Star" from the Pinocchio. Uh, from the Pinocchio, yeah, from Pinocchio. From that famous anime, Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> and while while that's going on, he's has this really weird kind of monologue where he's saying all the rabbits and the snakes and the shepherds and the tall skyscrapers have all gone to sleep, and he. Some of the references he says there, like one of them is is Strett letter from like the roommate of Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye. Um, and all these weird references, but he says, yeah, everybody's gone to sleep. I guess this is goodbye, Maytel. You know, I'm sure you'll be happy because you've made me so happy. And um, it's really weird. I'm not really clear what he's trying to get at, but the whole kind of feeling that he's painting here is this idea that he's been led on this big journey with this kind of mother-like figure who carried him in his dreams through until adulthood to the end. The last station on the Galactic Express is the Andromeda Galaxy, I think, or something. And he makes references to that in the song and in other songs as well. Um, there isn't actually a stop called Moonbase Beowulf, but it's totally the kind of name that Matsumoto Leiji would have created, I think. He had a lot of moon bases and and planetary bases, you know, with like these literary references and things like that. So it's consistent with what Matsumoto Leiji would have put into the manga. It's interesting, too, that he kind of like uh, folds in like a very recognizable American novel about uh, kind of the boundary of uh, youth and adulthood as well. Um, one that also uh, taught in most American schools, Catcher in the Rye, and like uh, one that I think like does seem to evoke kind of like that space that he's getting at, this liminal space where you're like at the end of your journey to adulthood, or maybe you can see the end, but you still feel like you're you're going basically. And that was the song that was originally a going yeah. steady song. Yeah. Right? Um, and this is yeah, this is the one where he. It has Merry Christmas in it. It has When You Wish Upon a Star and everything. It's a very like, uh, the first time I heard it, I was so confused by it <laughs> because of the Merry Christmas parts. It's a, it's really weird to hear a song that uh, becomes a Christmas song, uh, seemingly spontaneously, <laughs> you know? Um, but in the context of the song, it, it, it makes sense. Um, but uh was always this kind of baffling uh, collection of references to me when I, when I first heard it, but now, yeah, really in the context that it does seem to be like the, uh, um, yeah, just this celestial journey through childhood or through, um, adolescence kind of. Even the, uh, Stradlater reference fits in with all these other references that kind of, uh, you know, might not fit together in a sensical way, but in a dreamlike state, it's like, oh yeah, you are seeing, right. you are seeing cats, and shepherds and skyscrapers and your a random fictional characters popping in and i think the yeah being paired with the when you wish upon a star melody very dreamlike in in the same way that both uh the night on the galactic railroad book are dreamlike galaxy express 39 is super dreamlike kind of the narrative just kind of expects you to keep up it doesn't really make sense 
not this not this isn't a slight against it. It's just a. Uh, it's just kind of the nature of these stories, and I, I kind of feel like that part of the song just happens to work really well in in an intentional way. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it does work, and I've never heard anybody really do that, and I feel like it almost wouldn't work if it was in English. It would be really difficult to, to be able to reference something like that and not have it um, turn people off or turn into sort of like parody. Um, the way he does it, um, it feels very much like... You know, so many of the songs have these references where they're sort of like brought in. It's like all these things that sort of made the psyche of the character who it is sort of. Um. I will say this. We may be more forgiving of a Japanese person <laughs> saying things that that would be uh, corny or annoying to us in English. Maybe just because they uh, they don't strike the same chord as automatically. So... Yeah, that's possible. I don't know if it's necessarily because he's better. I just think we may be slightly more forgiving. I think it just comes from a different angle than than uh, almost would be possible in English. You know, like if you were to just be singing a song about um, being a kid and um, trying, you know, a, a song about growing up and then suddenly um, start saying Merry Christmas mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. when you wish upon a star. I don't know that it would translate exactly. Um but the way it's done in this song, um, it, like you said, very dreamlike, very surreal. And, and these things seem to um, blend together as though they're all kind of like part of where this character is just emerging from. Well, bouncing know? off of that comment and also what Bob said about it all seeming very intentional, obviously a reference to Stetletter can't be unintentional. You don't just accidentally drop that in. Mm -hmm. And I think that <laughs> it it is very much, you, Bob, you also said that Matsumoto Leiji is it's not a very straightforward narrative structure. You're just sort of on for the ride. And I feel like all of that is almost like that kind of South American magical realism kind of thing. Yeah. It's because there are these deliberate things where you know somebody's in control and they're putting them there for a reason, you allow it to happen. You're allowed to, I'm sorry, you're allowed to suspend your disbelief because of that. And um, it's almost like a Murakami Haruki kind of thing as well. Um, as long as you know somebody's in control, you're willing to just let it happen. And I think that is very much what he's doing here. He is taking you almost on this whole journey through childhood all the way to the edge of adolescence, right to the brink of adulthood. And I think, I don't think it's by accident that this is the B-side to Wakamonotachi, which is the hardest hitting punk anthem of their early songs a specifically specifically youth anthem yeah the song the song title right. translates to young people exactly yeah and in right. that one he's screaming you know we were born in this country we were born in this period and scream and let them know we're here and that kind of stuff and you know i want to die smiling and that kind of stuff so it's it's almost like those Going Steady albums brought us right up to the brink of adulthood. And as you said, Mike, after that point, he's looking back on it with disillusionment. So the mega nerds don't call us out on it. That's It's actually the B-side to Seishun Jidai, coincidentally mm. yet another youth anthem of sorts. Okay. <laughs> A farewell okay. to Sorry. youth yeah. anthem. Yeah. I, I still think it very well does go hand in hand. Sorry, I just thought of that right now. Okay. 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 Good correction, Bob. The nerds are going to be, you know... They're not going to let us slide on this. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that... Let them come. Where I want to go next is the fact that he he obviously puts these things in there for a reason. He's talking about the innocence, I think, and purity of youth. That's the narrative purpose, I would say, or the literary purpose of putting these kind of 
children's cultural references that everybody would instantly recognize. And in the early ones, in the Going Steady albums, he does it in a very honest and straightforward way. He's trying to summon up those feelings of that of of youth and um, childhood. And I think that in the Guinan Boys, he's doing it for a very different purpose. He's doing it to make fun of himself for being so optimistic and hopeful as a young person and to kind of smash all of that. I mean, that's the message that I got from Nihonjin when he says, you know, when he starts off with the Akatombo song and then he just gets all messy with it. And the thing that I've been teasing about that as well is there is a famous poem by Miyazawa Kenji where it's called Ame ni Momakezu. And it's this really uplifting poem it basically means we won't lose to the rain or we won't be won't let the rain defeat us and it's this song it's this uh poem that every kid grows up learning here and it's basically you know we won't let the rain defeat us we won't let the snow defeat us and the ice and the hailstorms and and all of that kind of a mailman's anthem yes exactly it's the mail it's the US postal <laughs> service anthem <laughs> Save the Postal Service. Yeah. So in that Nipponjin song, he says, uh, he has a lyric that says, Gomi no arashi ni momakezu. So he's saying to not be defeated by the storm of trash being thrown by the spectators. Um, <laughs> that that, so- that song, Nipponjin, he's talking a lot about baseball. There's a whole lot of baseball references. Like he's, I want to be the, you know, the relief batter completely naked or something like that. And like all this weird stuff. Um <laughs> But he is, yeah, like you said, he's kind of taking a taking a stab at all of Japanese-ness and Japanese culture and all of these things that people associate with being Japanese. I mean, baseball is very, very, I don't know, it goes very deep down into uh, Japanese culture, I think, um, to the point where they have Japanese words for everything. And, you know, during World War II, where, all, where it was pro- prohibited to learn English and to study it in school, and everything was considered the enemy's language baseball still stayed around which was brought here you know brought to japan by americans and they just changed it to make everything japanese and so i think that it's very very deep part of japanese psyche and culture and i think especially back then in 2000 this is when you know japan was really strong a lot of their players were going to play in the mlb um you know they were winning the world baseball champions and stuff like that championships so i was just gonna say the first time i met the band uh we talked about baseball, and me and Mineta took a picture where we both posed like Hideo Nomo when he would wind up to throw <laughs> the ball. So, particularly d- dorky origin story to that. When we were here, when they were here that time, we all went to the Giants yep. game too. Oh yeah, that was the that was the season that Bonds hit seventy. We got to see one of the home runs. Yeah. maybe like fifty eight or fifty nine. I think out of the the seventy. That's right. Yeah, I remember driving up and seeing Mineta in short shorts walking down the street on the way up there. And just feeling like it was one of the most surreal experiences <laughs> of my life, you know, going to the game with with all of us and uh, yeah, 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 bizarre. So, so I definitely think that in these ones he is uh, sort of plunging the knife into those old childhood references and then twisting it. Like in particular with Inuningen, like that song is such a sweet little pure song, and and every kid here recognizes it. it's what you grew up singing in in kindergarten, and then. He comes in with these lyrics like, I'm a walking corpse and I drank shampoo and shat blood and like this world is like piss from a daydream and stuff like that. Like it's all these like nasty references to 
to, uh, I mean, not references, all these, you know, references to like filth and squalor, rats and piss and blood. That might easily be the most self-flagellating song out of all of their songs. It's really grim. <laughs> Recently going over those lyrics, I've realized just how how abrasive it was. Truly, not even in like in a comical way. I think a lot of it is really, really a, a big mm. downer. It is. It is. And like, so he there's a lyric in that where he says he references that old song, "Ueo muite aruko," right? Like, uh, keep your head up and we'll keep walking. Which is a really skiaki for all the for all the westerners. Yeah, skiaki is the I forgot that's the English title of, which is so weird. Like naming it a different Japanese name. That's kind of like when the localization team for <laughs> Ninja Ryukenden decided, oh, Americans won't understand that, so they changed it to Ninja Gaiden, another obscure Japanese. <laughs> it would also, but it would also be like you know if a. Uh, like YMCA or some big song like that had gotten popular in Japan and they're like, let's name it Hamburger so we know it's an American song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Like yeah. naming it <laughs> Skiaki is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> But that and that song is kind of a melancholy song as well. But it is basically the idea of keep your head up and you know things are going to turn out all right, even though life is kind of getting you down. Um, and which is kind of the whole message of those early going steady records. But in that one, he says, "I sing the song, keep my head up, with my head down, looking at the rats on the ground, or something like that." Right. So, yeah, the whole thing is just it's so. I want to have I want to have like a psychologist kind of like <laughs> analyze this because it's so dark and bleak in times. Right? Ginnan Boys had a T-shirt that uh, referenced uh, the Stooges song "I Want to Be Your Dog," and it just has a funny drawing uh, with the like the half short, half long haircut that Cheen was rocking for a minute. Mm -hmm. The guy in the drawing had that same haircut, but it says "I Want to Be Your Dog," and this song is kind of like maybe the response to "I Want to Be Your Dog." Like I am. I'm prostrating myself as your dog now. I am, I'm nothing. I am, I, you know, like, do with me what you will. I'm trash. Yeah, and th this always felt like um, also a continuation of Mineta's kind of, like, transformation into a Iggy Pop-esque kind of front man. Uh, it seemed to me always like a, a reference to that, but uh, it's really interesting hearing just how deep um, all the other references go as well. It seems like um, maybe... Uh, I want to be your dog is almost accidental. Uh, to me, it always seemed on purpose, but um, no, well, so we sure. did talk before about him kind of taking on that mantle of the Iggy Pop kind of thing. I mean, physically, he started to look like a Japanese version of Iggy Pop, and I I don't think it's any, I don't think it's accidental. I mean, he's literally saying, "Chain me up like a dog," and I don't want freedom anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of references here that uh, you might miss if you're not if you're not Japanese but they're obviously writing these for a Japanese audience with them in mind and so these things have a very specific purpose I think when they're put there and my interpretation of what that purpose is that in going steady they were put there as a very innocent thing to conjure up the wonder yeah and innocence of childhood. And I think that in Ginnam boys he very deliberately uses them to juxtapose juxtapose the disillusionment of adulthood and, uh, you know, um, and, and, and maybe not only adulthood, it could be that they've re reached a certain level of fame and 
expectation to be these rock stars. I don't know if that's there or not. That could be me projecting, but but um, from this point on, he very clearly never has a happy uh, reference to childhood things. They're always, at best, juxtaposing it with with darkness and and kind of those other undertones. Definitely, yeah. There is one more reference that I think is kind of interesting, and this this is a reference from the song "I Don't Want to Die." So this is an old... Dude, that shit slaps. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like... It's, people call it like the first rap in Japanese. It's an old Lakugo song from like Meiji period, maybe Meiji 24 or so. So like we're talking like 1890s, early 1900s. Uh, around the turn of the century. And yeah, that was just like a popular chant that people sang there. It doesn't have any particular meaning, but it was a it was a popular chant way back then. It's something that you see occurring in other later pop songs, but it's not it doesn't conjure up anything like of youth or anything like that. So that's why I thought it might not be appropriate for this. I think episode. I think it is appropriate to bring up in the sense that uh the 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 reference is very specifically Japanese for Japanese people. Yeah. And it's not an obscure reference. I looked that song up myself. That is not that version that you just played for us. We'll play a sample of the, the other one. But that song was the first recording of a Japanese person ever in 1900. Oh, wow. <laughs> And, you know, it was written maybe 15, 20 years before that, and it was popular on the Japanese equivalent of, like, vaudeville theater. This was, you know, a common song that everyone knew. So I feel like Mineta referencing it in I Don't Want to Die is very specifically a nod to, like, what's up, my Japanese people? This is yeah. this is for us. Yeah. yeah. There's There's such, like, a conflicted relationship with that, and it seems like he's always kind of um dealing with his own Japanese-ness, you know, and like like you're saying, like with um uh Nyonjin, like immediately diving into all the stereotypes and all these in like the Ginan Boy shirt that uh they printed, there's I have one where uh there's a tiny image on the sleeve of a guy, a naked guy on a scooter propelling himself by farts, and then uh it says Nihonjin next to it. Um, <laughs> the message being pretty clear. Uh, It's yeah. He seems really um, to be pulling from a lot of the canon, a lot of really canonical things that, like you said, uh, either you grow up reading or you grow up hearing, or in this case, the first recording ever of a Japanese person. Um, It seems so powerful that um, this band became so big um, and that they were, dealing so um, uh, complexly and often kind of violently with the notion of, of who they are. It seems like, a, to me, the Guinan boys increasingly really are tearing apart the self, uh, kind of limb from limb. Um, and I think uh, his own, the, the notion of being Japanese is one of the things that, that Mineta kind of like really brutally <laughs> appropriates and tears apart if i could if i could get a little pretentious for a second too i think mineta is very much 
um, engaging with a worldwide narrative in a uniquely Japanese way. And I think that's not so different from Miyazawa Kenji or the the writer of Opekepe. I don't have his name in front of me. I have it in my show notes for the other episode. Uh, but Kawakami Otojiro. Yeah. And all those guys, I looked up Kawakami. You know, he traveled around Europe. He was meeting other arty people at the time. The, the people who recorded him were from a, a British record company. Uh, you know, he was he was a mover and shaker in his time. Uh, Miyazawa Kenji might not have been a mover or shaker, but he definitely kept up with all the artistic and scientific developments going on in the West. He traveled up to to Russia uh, when his sister died as kind of like a little spiritual journey. I heard that influenced his book. Um, and yeah. Adam, maybe you could tell us more about this, but I think for the Ginnan Shock books, Abiko went up to Siberia or Kamchatka or something, which... Uh, could be a reference to the the chewing the Kamchatka gum in the song, but also could be a, a tip of the hat to to Miyazawa Kenji also going up there. Yeah, I don't know if there's any connection about that. Um, and I didn't actually make the connection about the Kamchatka either. I just... I know that he has a he plays on words in that like he makes a pun for the beginning of each line. Yeah, but I didn't ever think that there was any significance to Kamchatka. Having said that, the one of the, this is the other dumb tidbit I remembered about Miyazawa Kenji is that supposedly he was interested in Esperanto, and uh, I remember yeah. I remember watching. Well, for people who don't know what Esperanto was, it was this language that someone created in an attempt to kind of have a global language that would be easy for everyone to use and communicate with each other. And uh, it kind of seems like a fusion of a lot of European languages with other elements mixed in that I I, I, I could never quite make sense of. But in the Night on the Galactic Railroad anime that was made in the 80s, all the title cards, a lot of background text was all in Esperanto. And I thought that was another little tip of the hat to like Mm. how how Miyazawa Kenji was interested in more than just his little corner of the northern Japanese countryside. And uh, I think Mineta is very much the same. He's a, he's a cosmopolitan guy who came from bumfuck nowhere, uh, took over the music scene in Tokyo, but is also like really hip to all the cool shit going on in uh, the U.S. and the U.K. And I think, I think part of the element of Ginan Boys being so good is that they're aware of that and... They want to be a part of it, but not in like a try hard kind of way. They're like, we're still going to do this our own uniquely Japanese way. And like you were referencing about Miyazawa Kenji writing in his country dialect, the Ginan boys are like not ashamed to be little country bumpkins, you know, like they are very much proud of who they are, where they came from. For sure. For sure. Okay. Well, I think that that is a good point to wrap this up because I think that this is a theme that we're going to come back to again and again is the idea of... um, that self-flagellation and kind of picking apart their earlier stuff and creating this darker narrative going forward. So I just wanted to point out some of the things that might have been missed by Western fans. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this latest episode. If you didn't enjoy it, hit like and subscribe. You know what to do. This is uh, Dog People. Adios. You think that's going to fool anyone into subscribing? <laughs> Dude, we're going to get a great fool market coming up. Reverse psychology. Reverse psychology. Bye, bye.
Thanks for listening to Dog People. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at dogpeople666, where we'll be posting supplemental photos and such for each episode. If you like what we're doing here, help us spread the word by sharing the show with a friend or two. Also, check out Adam's other podcast, Searching for Grog, wherein three brothers try to reconstruct their childhood memories of a road trip involving sledding accidents, freak hailstorms, confessions of love, and an arcade game about cavemen playing golf. Shout out to some of our other favorite music podcasts out there. Better yet, a long-form interview podcast covering the best artists from the extended DIY punk community. Unscripted Moments, a podcast about propaganda, and As You Were, a podcast about Alkaline Trio, both of which inspired us to do something similar. And the In Defense of Ska podcast by our old friend Aaron Carnes. 